Hi, I'm David Green, and you're listening to the Digital HR Leaders Podcast. For decades, we've been anticipating what the future of work will look like, what kind of skills will be valued most, and how leaders can better prepare their teams for the future. But the reality is that the future of work is already here. With AI and machine learning taking the world by storm, we are in a period of massive change and transformation. And to be successful, leaders will have to start leading differently. That's why I'm absolutely delighted to introduce our guest today, Heather McGowan. Heather is not only a leading future of work strategist, but also the co-author of two remarkable books that provide invaluable insights for navigating this rapidly evolving world of work. Her first book, The Adaptation Advantage, Let Go and Learn Fast to Thrive in the Future of Work, empowers leaders to embrace change and cultivate a culture of continuous learning. And her new book, also co-authored with Chris Shipley, The Empathy Advantage, Leading the Empowered Workforce, has been widely acclaimed as a game-changer in management literature and thinking, particularly in the post-COVID era. So, in our conversation today, Heather will share her profound research findings on the ways the pandemic has transformed the way we work. We'll explore the four pivotal shifts in leadership that have emerged during this time and discuss the increasing importance of empathy in driving organisational performance. I am confident that today's discussion will inspire you to rethink your approach to leadership and empower you with practical strategies for success in the future of work. So, without further ado, let's dive into this enlightening conversation with Heather McGowan, where Heather starts off by telling us a little bit more about herself. What I call myself is a future work strategist and a keynote speaker and an author. And Chris Shipley and I wrote the Adaptation Advantage, which came out in 2020, which was the, the premises of it was the, the future work is really learning and we can't have fixed occupational identities or fixed ideas. We have to essentially get adept at adapting. And that came out just prior to the pandemic. And oh boy, we did not know how much we were going to need to adapt then. And uh, since then, we've been, uh, I've been out on the circuit speaking nonstop. It went virtual to, to, to in real life, in and out of phases of that, really. And I started noticing some pretty fundamental shifts that were taking place with the acceleration of the pandemic, which led to our most recent book, The Empathy Advantage, Leading the Empowered Workforce. Yeah, I mean, fantastic. And obviously, that's what we're here to talk about. I mean, it's interesting because a lot of what you were talking about on the show three years ago was it exactly what you're saying? The future of work is learning, and we're actually seeing that playing out in a lot of big, big organisations. There's been lots of talk about talent marketplaces, but essentially, what these companies seem to be doing is doubling down on you know helping their employees get access to learning, access to mobility within the organisation, not always through permanent jobs, but for actually through getting involved in projects as well, and then having much more flexibility, perhaps around potentially having to redeploying people within the company rather than doing what companies usually do, cutting people, hiring others in other parts of the organisation. So I think a lot of what you were talking about then is is really starting to play out. And and I think, as you said at the time, had been accelerated um, by the pandemic as well. Not only has it has it played out, it's gone from push to pull. So it used to be the employees pushing employees to learn. Now the Pew's latest survey on why people leave organizations. Of course, number one is compensation. People jump for more dollars, but that doesn't sustain. But with a net score that was the same, it was learning opportunities. Because people realize if I'm not learning, I'm not going to be earning in the future. 
And so they know that's what makes them uh, valuable in the future. And so that's becoming a real pull with uh, employees. And I think it links nicely that that kind of push to to, to pull um, thing is is quite interesting as well because we obviously want to delve into the empathy ad- advantage today, which you co-authored again with with Chris Shipley. Um, you know, it's been praised. Um, I was reading through um, the endorsements. It's been praised as the most important book on management in the post-COVID era, which I think is a a nice little uh, line to get us started. And um, could you share a short summary of what of what the book is about? Yeah, so the, the book is really divided into three sections. We try to make it very easy for folks to both read and skip around because I am a short attention span person as well. So you should be able to read it on a cross-country flight. It's about 200 pages with about 35 graphics. First part is meet your new workforce because it's not the one you left in 2019. Uh, second part is you have to rethink about how you actually organize work because the maps and the models in the past are not only not helpful, they can actually be dangerous like driving in the city of Boston, which I'm from, using maps before the big dig. You know, it's just not going to get you anywhere. It's going to get you lost and frustrated. And then the third part is about rethinking your leadership entirely. Because here's what we think happened. Really, there have been two transformations. One is a changed relationship between individuals and organizations. The workforce is now empowered. And no economic downturn, soft landing, hard landing, short recession, long recession, is going to change that fundamental fact. And that comes from the existential crisis of the pandemic, generational and attitudinal changes in the workforce, and labor shortages, which are going to continue unabated, at least in the, in the developed world anyway, for a decade to two decades. We're going to have to get used to that. So that's one transformation. The second transformation is from linear to complex. We've had 15 years of digital disruption, and now organizations, the simplest way I explain it to people is most people at every level in organization will or will soon have people reporting to you who have skills and knowledge you don't have. And so that means you can't rely on your individual intelligence as a leader. You have to harness collective intelligence. You have to organize work differently. You have to treat your workers differently. So I say there are four shifts that a leader needs to take place, leader needs to embrace. First is a shift in mindset. You're not managing people and processes anymore. You're enabling success. And to be intentionally provocative about it, I say, you used to think of the people as working for you. Now you work for them. You enable their success because you're not going to get anywhere without their success. Uh, The second is a shift in culture. We used to, when we had the same skills and knowledge leader and the team, and then usually across the team, you could pit people against each other. Forced rankings, all those kind of bad ideas, hunger games kind of stuff. That doesn't work anymore. So you got to shift from peers as competitors to peers as collaborators. The third shift is a shift in approach. One we should have made when we all read Dan's Pink's book, what was it, 12 years ago, from extrinsic to intrinsic motivation. We're never going to get people to learn and adapt at the speed, scale, and scope we need through punishments, threats, and rewards. It's just not going to work. Never was a good way to motivate people. And then finally, a shift in behavior. We used to have our leaders myopically drive productivity at any cost, grinding people to dust, burning people out, didn't matter. With domination, fear, even humiliation, didn't matter. Now we need leaders who can create effectiveness through inspiration, who can create performance through empathy. And we need to look at those leaders not just based on the performance they're driving today, although that's important, but also the pipeline of talent they're developing for tomorrow because we've got greater churn in organizations, we have labor shortages, we need succession planning and developing people around us at every turn. So that's, that's kind of a fly through the book. And, and these, that's really helpful. Thank you, Heather. These things were 
happening anyway, weren't they? And, you know, we I mean, there's been a lot of focus around how the pandemic accelerated the change in the way we work and where we work, perhaps as well. But actually what you've really talked about there, it's 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 changed the way we lead as well. Or it, it should have changed the way we lead. And that adds another layer of complexity. Absolutely. And we're seeing a shift in leadership, too. So I when I would go out and speak and I usually speak to senior level kind of leaders, it, the room would be at least half boomer. And now there's a handful of boomer, a lot of Gen X leaders, more millennial leaders. And now we're seeing, at least in the U.S., it's about 12 to 13 percent of the workforce is Gen Z. That's going to be 30 percent by 2030. And they're an entirely different animal. They are going to change work in really fundamental ways that I think are ultimately positive. And there's definitely, as you've talked about, there's that shift um, to a more empathetic um, leaders. And, and so it'd be interesting because we talked about this a little bit when we spoke um, last week, I think. What have you discovered? Because obviously uh, there's there's a ton of research in, in your books, Heather, which I think is, you know, which is, I think, really important that, you know, you're not just, just opinions you're putting out there. This is based on deep research, interviews and works with, with lots of organisations as well. I'd love to understand what have you discovered about the link between empathy and performance? Well, first, I think we need to dispel the notion that empathy means less. And I didn't really even understand it until I started doing these, you know, uh, book tour interviews where people said to me, okay, so we got to be empathetic. We got to be nice. We got to make concessions for people. Um, Let them do less and expect less. And I thought, well, there may be days that's true. Your dad dies. You have to put your dog to sleep. There are days that we have to be human and that's true. But no, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about empathy as a means of understanding your workforce so you can help them not only motivate them, but help them become self-propelled. Empathy ultimately drives performance. It's not about lesser performance. It's about greater performance. It's also about greater balance. Because what's really happened during the pandemic, and I think people get all caught up on where work takes place, you know, home, hybrid office. I have really have no opinion on that. What I think has happened is, and I, everything's pictures to me, so I have to draw, is we had a smaller circle uh, in 2019 that was called our personal life. And we had agency over our personal life. And we had a bigger circle that casted a shadow on that smaller circle, and that was our professional life. The smaller circle is what makes our eulogy at the end of the day. This bigger circle is what makes our resume. And when you have an existential crisis, the personal circle grew, the professional circle shrunk a little bit, they became overlapped, we had agency over both, and we started asking, which is why I call it an existential crisis, is this what I'm doing with my life? Do I want to work with this jerk? Do I want to do this stuff I don't believe in? And that's why I think we've seen such a, the Great Resignation is really five greats. We've seen such an upheaval in what people do. And, and what I say is it's not about where we work, it's about where work fits in our lives. And I will argue when it fits in the right place, we will get better performance. So empathy to me is ultimately, it is a nice thing to do. It's a right thing to do. It's a way of being human. All of those things are given, but it's also, if you do it right, a performance driver. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's important, isn't it? And and I guess for leaders to maybe, particularly those that have grown up, being led very differently and maybe learned how to lead from from people that have led them, it, it's, it's challenging, I guess. It's a huge shift. And I, and I gave uh, a couple of talks one week to uh, real estate, commercial real estate folks. And they were all, it was mostly boomers, some Gen X. They were mostly kind of alpha dog folks. A lot of more male than, one of them was almost all male. 
it's not gendered though, but that was the case in the, in this instance. And they were like, aren't you, don't you think we're getting woke and aren't we getting soft and aren't we losing our edge? And I thought, oh, I'm not explaining this right if that's what you're taking away from this. But I also thought, I'm telling you to have empathy, but I'm not having empathy for you. And I think that was a huge aha, is that if you were brought up, uh, raised with this, give up your Saturdays, don't go to your kid's soccer game or cricket game, whatever it may be. Work comes before everything. Maybe go down to your second or third marriage because you've ground all your relationships to dust. That's how you become a leader. And then in order to lead, you've got to have your people be afraid of you and not like you. And that that's what you were brought up with. This does seem like, how could this possibly work? And you have to have empathy for folks and say, I know you gave up all those things. I know what you went through, frankly, sucked. And the people who are coming along now that you're going to be leading are not going to put up with it. It's not going to work. So I need to have empathy effect for what you went through. But I got to tell you, if you want to be successful, you are not going to be successful with those tactics. And I think that I guess one of the challenges for leaders is, you know, we were always taught. I mean, I'm I'm male, I'm British, so we're definitely taught not to show vulnerability. Whereas actually, people being led now expect their leaders to show vulnerability and say we haven't got all the answers and you know we saw we definitely saw that during the pandemic we saw certain leaders that that showed vulnerability and we saw other leaders that didn't show vulnerability and 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 the the former went down much better with the electorate and seemed to handle the crisis much better than than those that didn't as well yeah those folks who said they what they knew and what they didn't know when they empathize with people tend to have fewer deaths than those who pretended that it wasn't happening yeah mm. yeah yeah that's probably as close as you and i will get to politics even though i know we agree on that front i know we probably could but maybe that's <laughs> yeah. uh, maybe that's over a glass of wine not on a podcast but um yeah. so to the leader that's maybe not used to showing vulnerability you know, what how what would you say to them you know as a, as a tip really to, to 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 help them get more comfortable with that yeah. First of all, let me just empathize with you. I know it's not comfortable. I make all my audience say with me, let's all say the, say the four scary words. I do not know. And we say it together. And I say, and I know you were, you were, you were brought up as leaders not to say those words. But what's happening now is if you pretend you know and you don't, you could be leading your team down a very dangerous path. You have to acknowledge what you don't know as an opportunity to learn. Because the first step in learning is say, I don't know. Because if you know, you're not learning. And the best leaders, especially now, are ones that are humble, curious learners. And the best leaders who are inspiring their team members are being human with them. Does that mean you have to show up crying at work, exposing everything about yourself? No, nobody wants that. But they want you to say what you know, what you don't know, try to understand them. But there's still accountability. I mean, employees have to be accountable, or talent, whether they're engaged as employees or not, still have to be accountable. We still have performance metrics. We still have targets to meet. But I think we'll meet them better if we act human at work. Yeah. You know, I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the stuff I read about the future of work, you know, it's, it, it is a different different workplace to, to what it was a few years ago and it's going to get even more different I guess in the future and you know one of the things that you know people like you people like Linda Grattan you know others that the kind of leading management thinkers are saying you know we need to experiment you know and if you're experimenting you don't necessarily know what the answers are going to be out of it but it's it's about being that that transparency that vulnerability it's about saying we don't know we're going to try it see if we work we're going to talk to you about your experience of this and then we're going to learn and adapt 
Hey, we're going to listen to you. That was one of the greatest things I saw as we kind of, the pandemic moved more into the endemic space and people were calling people back to the office and people kept asking me to give talks on declaring the audio office was the space everyone needed to work on or declaring everyone needs. I said, I, I'm not making any declarations. What I think is the experiment should begin now. We learned a lot in the pandemic. We learned what we were capable of. We were much more, much, much more adaptable than we ever thought. We had very good business continuity in the sectors that didn't have to close down. We trusted our people. We had a taste of that empathy advantage in those years. And we need to figure out how to take that taste forward. Where leaders are leading an empowered workforce, they still feel good about their leadership. And we experiment with where and when we come together in person, what are the jobs that need to be done together, which ones or tasks really can be done remote, how often do we come together, how do we set the optimal conditions for collaboration if so much more of our work is going to be collaborative, which it is. This series of the Digital HR Leaders podcast is sponsored by Worklytics, generate actionable insights from work data while protecting employee privacy using Worklytics data stream. Worklytics combines passive listening with organizational network analysis to help you understand how work is getting done so you can identify bottlenecks, improve collaboration, and increase employee engagement. Curious to see how it works? Worklytics is offering a free meeting effectiveness analysis to the first 10 qualified companies who express interest. Tell them I sent you by going to worklytics.co forward slash digital HR leaders. That's W-O-R-K-L-Y-T-I-C-S dot co forward slash digital HR leaders. Based on your research, Heather, you know, what are the likely costs of ignoring the need for more empathetic leadership for companies? Well, it depends on how you look at it. But empathetic, if you're not empathizing with your employees, you're going to have tremendous turnover. And turnover, when you think about, if you knit together the two books, if you think about how much learning we need to have in work, you're just hemorrhaging your knowledge base because you'll be training your people, um, trying to close that skills gap, which will never close, by the way, and that's okay. But you're bringing your people along and up to speed to operate effectively in your organization, and then you're losing them, and then you've got to start all over again. So it isn't just acquiring talent. It's it's a, a lot of the talent that's out there doesn't have the skills. No, none of them have the skills to do the jobs we need people to do now. It's really learning on the job, and you're losing those people. So huge turnover if you don't empathize with your people, which is high enough as it is. Um, but then if you're not empathizing with your customers, you're missing the market entirely. So you need it on both fronts. And I guess it's exacerbated because of what you said earlier about the the fact that the the labor market in the developed countries, you know, like the US, like the UK, like Germany, like Japan, particularly, it's shrinking, you know, so, you know, we don't have the people we need to to fill the jobs we've got, let alone the fact that the skills are changing quite dramatically as well. Right. I mean, we can only hope chat GDP can do all of these things. But I read an article recently that uh, that observed we will waste a million hours before we will save a million hours. And that's true of products and technology. So like we sold more TVs than vacuum cleaners when they first came out right around the same time because we were much more interested in the entertainment aspect of it than the time saving aspects of it. So we're all playing around with chat GDP. But we don't have an actual labor saving use for it yet that's reliable at scale. Yeah. 
So before we move on to to focus on, you know, what the research that you've done and, the, you know, what, you know, the sort of empathy-led approach means for, for HR professionals and individuals, is there anything else that you'd like to kind of bring forward about the, for the leader part? Because I know that's a, that's a, that's a huge part of the, of the book. You know, is there anything else that you think leaders listening to this or prospective leaders listening to this should be, should be aware of? Well, I mean, the other elephant in the room is diversity, equity, and inclusion, which is really diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. And that's another reason that empathy is so important. As you can hire a bunch of diverse candidates, whether it be racially diverse, neurologically diverse, uh, social mobility, which is, I think, increasingly one we should be looking at, gender diverse. But if you don't have an empathetic leader who can not only uh, help those folks be successful, but br bring out the uniqueness of their perspectives, because that's the real power of diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, um, then you're missing the point of having them entirely. Yeah, like you've done the right thing, quote unquote, but you, the real power in diversity and inclusion and belonging is getting those diverse perspectives that check your blind spots, that meet the market better, that make for a richer, um, more creative uh, office environment. Yeah. Yeah, an important topic. I'm glad you highlighted that. So so just moving to HR professionals, because most of the people that listen to this podcast are HR professionals. Um, you know, HR has really stepped up, I, you know, in, in many organisations over the last few years during the pandemic. Um, and that's continuing, you know, now, I guess there's, there's so many other challenges around. And now we're hearing all this, um, you know, challenges around. We've had the great resignation. We've had, you know, people talking about quiet quitting. We've got the whole skills agenda. Uh, and now we've got this huge technological advance. I think it's been going on, but it's always been hyped up a little bit over the last few months with, with chat GPT and generative AI. You know, what should HR focus, uh, HR professionals be focusing on more? And maybe also what should they stop focusing on to help drive um, business value tomorrow? Um, we need our HR folks to put on their gas mask before they help anybody else. I'm really concerned. I do a lot of my speaking to HR groups. I am really concerned about the HR profession because there's so much stress on you folks lately because you've got uh, labor shortages. So that makes your hard job, your job harder. Burnout makes your hard job harder. Rise in, in mental illness and challenges makes your job harder. And the continued pressure on this group, and I, and I have said, and I've been saying it for more than a year now, is that we came out of, we went through the global financial crisis and your CFO was your MVP. They, they got you through it. And then um, the, when we went into the pandemic lockdowns, your CTO, your CIO, depending on how you're structured, was your MVP because they took you from 10 central offices to 100,000 home offices. Now, coming out of the pandemic with an empowered workforce, labor shortage, et cetera, it's going to be your, your HR person, your CHRO. And I think with the pressures and focus that we have sort of flanked with also your chief learning officer and your chief diversity officer, those that's the core MVP team that's going to help us get to this next place in work, which I think is a tremendous opportunity. So I want to acknowledge that, you know, check, check on each other, make sure you're okay first, because I think there's going to be a tremendous amount of burnout and a lot of turnover probably in the HR profession and anything we can do to help folks be healthy and well taken care of. So that that's first and foremost. Um, I think in terms of where we focus, I think we stop focusing on assuming we can acquire the skills that we can just find a deploy, what I call a deployable workforce. You're probably not going to find the people that you need this goes you want. Because by the time you have, you know, acknowledge that you have a need in the market to, to have what I call need relief, that needs probably changed. And the skills gap is never really going to close. Because if you look at it, the skills gap forms 
When a human demonstrates a skill, the market values the skill in excess of supply. That's actually progress. So if we can assume that learning is part of work and put learning in HR and put HR in the C-suite, front and center next to the CEO, I think is the most strategically important thing we need to do right now. Because when you look at where value comes from, um, there was a recalculation of the S&P 500. And in 1975, 83% of the value, enterprise value, all the companies on the S&P 500 came from property, plant, and equipment, tangible capital, because we made stuff and other stuff. And in that, that 17% that was intangible capital was really humans. And Milton Friedman came out and said, the only social responsibility of a company is to return profits to shareholders. Full stop. Environment doesn't matter. Community doesn't matter. Employees don't matter. Customers don't matter. And we treated organizations that way for 50 years. And then in the U.S., and this has been echoed by other, other thought leaders around the world, um, came forward, uh, the, the uh, community roundtable, the, um, the top CEOs in the U.S. came forward and said, it's not working anymore. We're not actually creating real value. We're juicing the market. We're decimating our communities. We're trashing the environment. And our employees have been disengaged for 20-plus years. And now they're increasingly disengaged. We were up two points on disengagement and two, down two points on engagement in the last two years, each of the last two years. And we've got rising burnout. So it's not working. And now if you look at, in 2020 was the last calculation, 90% of the enterprise value of all the companies on the S&P 500 comes from intangible capital. It's the human value error. That's what I call it. I called it the start of that in 2020. Um, that's where we need to think about humans as the most precious assets in our organization and their assets to develop, their assets to protect and so HR is going to um, have the role of helping avoid burnout, because the best way to get rid of burnout is to avoid it to begin with, um, not to wait till you have to treat it, because it's very hard to treat. Um, so HR folks need to f- help organizations, help the whole C-suite understand that this is a different game. We're going to be acquiring humans into our organization. We're going to be treating them like the most precious assets. We're not going to see how many hours we can make them work. Instead, we're going to see where we can inspire them in ways that we can uh, help them increase their performance, which may include fewer hours in some cases. How do we optimize learning? Those are the kind of things HR folks are going to focus on. So it's a very much a humanization of the workforce. Yeah, it's interesting. I think what you're saying is we kind of transition from that era of profit to the era of people obviously we still want profits but 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 it's more people centered now rather than profit centered and obviously with with people making up most of the cost of an organization those intangible assets and it's interesting isn't it because with the business roundtable um communication that you talked about which i think was in 2019 just before the pandemic where they said well, no longer are we just driven by profit by by shareholders we're now you know it's it's about employees it's about customers it's about our um, it's about the communities. It's about society as a whole, which is quite quite interesting. And it'll be interesting to see how that plays out because with those size of organisations, it'll take a few years to actually play out and we start seeing that. But I guess at the same time, we saw the SEC come out with you know mandating more human capital disclo- disclosure of human capital information by um, by companies that those that are listed on, on on that exchange, and we've seen that replicated elsewhere in the world. We've seen. You know, we're seeing the EU put a lot of legislation out around companies having to report around equity, DEI, other other areas as well. So this is where it's going, which is good from a regulatory perspective, I guess, if you care about people. So if companies have to report it, hopefully they will 
try and do something about it before they report. But I guess it's a huge opportunity for, for HR to be at the centre of that. You know, obviously the, the area that, that, that I'm in and we're in at Insight 222 is very much around the people analytics area. You know, folk, you know, predominantly working in HR, at least over 90% people analytics teams are in within HR, increasingly reporting directly to the CHRO as well which means that the CHRO is in a position where they can bring data to the conversation just like any other C-suite leader, which is important, I guess, well, is important at that, at that level. And I, if we can start to help educate, if we need to educate other C-suite leaders, that actually if you lead in a more empathetic way, if you think about the people and you, as you said, you're trying to prevent burnout rather than just trying to to to, to, to deal with it when it happens, if we're if we're giving opportunities to our people through, you know, proper learning pathways, career opportunities within the organisation, it actually helps us be more successful as a company, then hopefully, and again, it's not always going to happen like that, but hopefully that means that we're going to get to where that human capital era that, that, that you've been talking about. Yes, and I think that's, by the way, where your book was hugely helpful for folks because it was such a great, it is such a great manual to help people understand the power of HR analytics. Um, yeah, I think personally, I think if the organization, the problem with the, what the business roundtable did, in my opinion, is it was, it went from one focus on shareholders to a focus on everything. And I don't think people can do well when they focus on everything. So I think if organizations and led by HR say, we're in the business of developing human potential. And by being in the business of developing human potential, we are going to get greater value. And then you let the forces um, of better environmental community, social justice, come from the customers, they will do the right thing. You just can't have all the forces going kind of all over the place. It doesn't give people a way to focus. So I think if we hope, focus on developing people, we'll have you know spillover impact into communities and there'll be secondary impacts there. Environmental impacts will be there as well. But I really think if we focus and say the purpose of our organization is to develop our people. When we develop our people, we can respond to the known and the unknown opportunities as they unfold and increasingly more rapidly than we've ever been prepared for before. I think I entirely agree, Heather. And, and I think it was interesting you said something about the skills gap as well. And we're going to talk a little bit about skills later. But I guess one of the key things around this, as you said, you're never going to completely close the skills gap and we should be comfortable with that. I guess what we're trying to do as an organisation is is have a smaller skills gap than our competitors. You know, and that's by, you know, by by being very proactive around learning, around career mobility, around retention, um, around you know bringing in external data so we can understand what that that skills gap is and, and understand supply and demand factors and what's happening out in, in uh, out in the wider world as well and helping direct maybe our location strategy for example or or, or our approach and in 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 how in how we're going to fulfill some of those gaps is it through permanent employees is it through contractors is it through outsourcing is it through technology etc cetera, etc cetera. Uh, so I guess that's a, and that's something that HR really should be at the forefront of. Yes, and also using predictive analytics wherever it's possible. So instead of saying, "Okay, hello there, Jim. You used to be an accountant. Well, we don't need as many accountants now. So let's see if we can reskill you for for a job in data analytics. But we need the data person in data analytics today, and it's going to take six months for you to be." ready to pivot from accounting data analytics. 
Do that 10 years ahead of time. Do that five years ahead of time. There's lots of platforms for predictive analytics. I, I interviewed the folks from Faithum, which is now part of Pearson. I know IBM has their in-house version of it. I know AT&T has their in-house version. A lot of companies have their in-house version of it. There are also external platforms you can use. But that's important for two reasons. One, you get the people ready before you need the skill but you also get people ready to adapt to a different identity. Because as much as I've tried to get ready, people saying, this is what I do for a living, we are sort of attached to that identity. So you've got to give people time and say, you know what, you're, we're going to be sunsetting, you know, 60% of these positions. We don't need as many of them anymore, but we need these positions over here. And here's your pivot score. So we're proactively bringing people along in a kind of a constant state of adaptation. Yeah. Yeah, couldn't agree more. And I guess one other area, I don't know if you've seen this in some of your research, Heather, is, you know, HR, people, analytics teams, you know, looking beyond, you know, looking at networks within the companies, looking how teams work together, um, how they how they collaborate, how they collaborate out, you know, between teams as well. That kind of understanding that that kind of social, the social part of the organization as well, because that that is so important because that's really how companies work, isn't it? It's not the org chart. It's 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 their networks. Yes, and I remember uh, a study that was done, I think it was like early 2000s or maybe late 90s, on the UK healthcare system, and they were doing some massive change within it, and they realized that people who had bridging social networks, which means, you know, I work in HR, but I've got a really good friend in finance, and I've got a good friend in marketing, I'm socializing a lot of the things they want to have happen in the organization by the nature of my social network. But if I have a very concentrated social network, I'm sort of reinforcing the negatives and the positives of that change as opposed to socializing it across the organization and making sense of what it means to different functions. I think those social maps are great. LinkedIn used to have one, which is really cool, but they stopped doing it. Or maybe I have too many contacts for it to work. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. If you are looking to continue your learning journey, head over to myhrfuture.com and take a look at the My HR Future Academy. It is a learning experience platform supporting HR professionals to become more data-driven, more business-focused, and more experience-led. By taking our short assessment, you will see how you stack up against the HR skills of the future. Then, our recommended learning journeys guide you every step of the way, helping you to close your skills gap, deepen your knowledge, and press play on your career. Let's turn to the individual. You know, what should individual workers, you know, what should they be doing to transition to benefit from the empathy advantage? Well, this old adage has always been true, but I think it's increasingly true now because we've looked so much at why do people leave organizations? Why do people stay in organizations? Why do people thrive in organizations? And one of the things we're coming down to is it's a connection to a sense of purpose. This organization is trying to make the impact in the world that I want to make in the world. In fact, we saw between 2021 and 2022, 50-some-odd percent of the people who changed jobs changed industries and functions entirely. So it's people connecting more to what they want to do, what's their self-expression. We ought to think about work as self-expression. So in that, it, you know, look for an organization that shares your values, has the, makes the impact you want to have in the world, um, but also has a, has a, shares your, your values in terms of how they operate. Are you formal, informal, flexible? Do you want to work in the office every day, dressed up? Do you want to stay home in your jammies three days a week? 
How do you want to work? How do you want to connect with people? And then it's the personal relationships that really help things stick. In particular, it's your relationship with your boss. So don't pick a job, pick a boss, pick a leader, pick a manager as a mentor. Um, if you, you know, I, I speak to so many organizations and sometimes I speak to general audiences. So it's everybody in the company and I'll always get this question. Like, I completely agree with what you're saying. This is the world I want to work in, but my boss doesn't agree or my boss is old school or my manager is speaking about, you know, the, the world that used to be. And I say, within your sphere of influence, what is your opportunity to change things? And if there isn't, pick a new boss. Leave the company. Go to another organization. People are doing it all the time. But don't just jump for, you know, the paycheck does not last that long. I mean, get paid equitably. Be good with your pay, but don't jump at every dollar because you're never really going to be happy with that. But really pick the people from whom you can learn, whom you can grow, whom you feel psychologically safe, where you feel like you have self-expression. Somebody who listens to you and says, oh, I think you've got some capabilities over here. I want to introduce you to somebody in this other division, or I want you to take on this project. People who help you stretch and grow. Think about yourself as a product in beta, and you're putting yourself in these different environments. And what are the best environments to help you as a product grow and evolve? Yeah, yeah, some, some, some great advice there. So we've, moving on, we've kind of talked about it a little bit, moving on to the topic of AI you know, along with a shift in leadership and management styles since the pandemic, there's also been, you know, more acceleration in technological um, advancement and we, we, such a generative AI. And obviously, I know this is something you study, you're looking several, as a future work strategist, you're looking several years into the future. Love to gather your thoughts on, on what this means for companies as we move into the future. And again, I guess what it means for companies, maybe what it means for workers, but again, I guess what it means for, for HR as well. Well, first and foremost, we should stop with the hysteria. The hysteria is almost always misplaced. And I use the example of the ATM. The ATM came out, I think it was 50 years ago, 40 some odd years ago. Everybody thought everybody bank teller was going to go away. But actually what happened is we increased our bank tellers. Because what we did is we decided we needed a smaller bank presence footprint. And we needed more of them. And we needed more bank tellers. And so sometimes the technology can reduce the number of jobs. Sometimes it can grow the number of jobs. It's kind of a parlor trick on guessing whether, you know, generative AI is going to kill jobs or create jobs. It's going to do both. Um, what it's going to do is extend our potential. I mean, look at where we're, we're on um, uh, Riverside is the name of the platform we're on today. We weren't on this, these platforms 10 years ago. We took them to them like a fish to water. Zoom had been around for 10 years when we shut down in 2020 and um, everybody went on Zoom and acted like it was a new thing and it had been around for a decade. So we have a lot of tools around us that allow us to connect, allow us to extend our potential, but just know that you're gonna have to, as soon as you hand something off to technology, you're gonna reach up and have to learn something new. It's a constant cycle. And so there's gonna be changes. Um, HR, in, I spoke to some accounting groups, so I have this data. It used to take 500 hours to audit you know, an excise company. Now it's five hours and, uh, you know, auto process automated work. So we need fewer accounts. We need more data analysts. It changed the function, but it didn't actually, you know, didn't make humans obsolete. And that's not going to take place here either. It's going to be slower than we think. It's probably going to be at a place we're not going to, we're not looking at. But we, we need to be ready to do is say, how does this help me be more human, be better at my job, serve my customers better, work better with my uh, my other employees or talent in collaboration. 
That's how we have to look at it. We have this fear that some piece of technology is just going to suddenly replace us all. And that has not been the case if you look back over the last 40, 50 years when we've had technology creeping in all over the place. Mm. And it's not even if you go all the way back to the Industrial Revolution as well. I mean, it's, you know, you obviously had the, 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 the original Luddites in the, in the UK, the weavers and, um, you know, in Manchester and places. But yes, obviously, as you said, it, 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 does, it does eliminate some tasks, but it creates new tasks. And, but I guess that then increases the uncertainty, the complexity, the, the need to acquire new skills. And, and back to your book, you know, the adaptation advantage, the, the need for continuous learning um you know it's, it's 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 really interesting and this 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 reminds me i think i don't know if it was 2017 2018 it's probably when i was at ibm every conference i went to was lots of hype about ai and hr that died down for a while and now now it's coming back now some of this technology does look particularly impressive um but but i guess what it will hopefully do is remove some of those repetitive tasks that you know, maybe we don't really enjoy doing. So it hopefully might make us more productive, might might help us do stuff that's more interesting. Yeah, I hope I hope we're smart about it. And one of the analogies I use when I when I speak to folks is, you know, if you've ever had to call customer service and they have you enter your account number and then you push one and you push two and you push three and then somebody answers the phone and asks you the same information again. There's a use of technology that does not remove friction. It just increases your level of frustration, right? That's what we don't want to do with these tools. What we do want to do is something like, um, you know, using a, a, a restaurant reservation thing like Open Table, where I go on, I say, hey, by the way, I know it's table number 248. This is the person who waited on me. I click, click, and I made a reservation. I get there, and they say, oh, we have this new bottle of wine we think you'll like, or there's a new thing on the menu we think you like. They increase the human experience and remove the friction of trying to call the restaurant in between meetings to try to make a reservation. Places where we can seamlessly use technology to remove friction and increase the experience, not increase friction and add frustration. That's our opportunity. Yeah, that's it. And, and that, I guess that leads nicely to the next question. So we've, we've, there's been a, we've been talking about this throughout a little bit, actually. So one big opportunity, as we, we talked about, the advancement of technology is the introduction of new skills. But again, going back to previous research, going back to university or college learning skills is, is time consuming. And, and, and actually, by the time you've learned them, they may be a bit out of date as well. Um, so w- what would you say is the most efficient way? So if you're if thinking here, we've got, we've got learning professionals, we've got HR professionals listening to this. What would you say is the most efficient way of training and developing your employees? Well, that's a that's a pretty big, broad question. So it depends it on is. In, yeah, in, in what and for what. So um, there are some, you need your employees to come with the expectation that whatever they know now is okay for today, or probably more likely yesterday. It's their it's the context in which they can put new information. It's their ability to add and delete skills, just like we add and delete applications on our phone when we run out of memory. We need that sort of mindset. And some um, some tasks are best done on the job, learning with a mentor and going through the process. Some other ones are, you know, take this quick class so you understand these things. Um, there are some, you know, platforms that push it right out to the front line so you have that information on your phone at the ready so you can look something up and you can respond to something in real time. So it really depends on what the type of learning is and what the type of need for that learning is as well. Yeah, good some good advice there. 
So this is uh, this is a question that we're asking. This is our last question, actually. We, uh, I can't believe we've already got to the end. But th- th- this is the question we're asking I- every guest on on this series of the podcast. You know, what steps and can HR leaders take within within their organisation to humanise the work experience, and how can they measure it? You know, as well. Yeah. Uh, first, first and foremost, is acknowledge that this is your greatest path to power and performance. It's not going to come from diminishing the human. It's going to be coming from unleashing that potential in the human. And so not only does the HR professional have to, it has to be believed across the entire organization, leadership team, especially the C-suite, if you're an organization large enough to have a C-suite. They have to understand that humans are what's driving the value in every single organization. Not just the cost, they are the value. They are the source of the value, 90 plus percent of source of value. So in order to do that, you have to meet people where they are and say, you know, okay, I know CEO, you grew up in this environment and you're used to just driving performance metrics, but let's just look at how that's gone. You know, that's one of the things I say to the audience is, you know, like, how are we doing? Not great. You know, we have been driving people into dust for decades now, and we seem to be doubling down on it at times when you look at opportunities, you look at how well we did in the pandemic. That's what I keep reminding folks of. That was a flying bind situation that we, nobody knew it was going to happen week to week. We sent our people home. We shipped them computers if they didn't already have one. We checked in on them. We sent them meals. We sent them gift packages. We said, are you okay? It gave them agency and autonomy, and they performed. Actually, we had a 1% increase in engagement in that first year. Now, of course, that got pulled into burnout because people were working too many hours. But look at the power of trusting your people and providing psychological safety and uh, giving them autonomy and letting them feel that agency. That should be what we're all looking to do without the stress of a pandemic. And uh, that's the only real good data I have on that at that scale. But we really did well when you look back and we really did well. Yeah, agreed. And I and I guess that the, a challenge for HR or an opportunity for HR is is to scale this approach across the people managers within the organisation. Because as you rightly said, you know HR can only do so much. But it's 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 how do we get this out to people managers that that actually this is the way to drive success for the organisation, but also success for for the people that you're managing as well. Yeah, and that's one of the things we need is we need a large scale rethinking of leadership and HR can be part of that as well. And particularly in some organizations, it's really the middle management where they get stuck because they're used to being unquestioned experts and subject matter experts. And now they're finding they're not and they're finding it overnight sometimes and they're frustrated. And so they're doubling down on demand sometimes when they, that's when they might really need their HR partner to say, Hey, wait a minute, let's think about how you're leading your team. Let's think about your approach right now. Is it really getting the results that you want? And how can I help you rethink this so you really unleash the potential of the collective intelligence you have across your team now, which is more diverse than it was you know, a year or two ago? It's an exciting time. It's challenging, I guess, as well for, for, for many people. Change is always hard, isn't it, at, at the end of the day? Heather, thank you so much for being uh, a guest on the Digital HR Leaders podcast. And I wish you and Chris all, all the best with the, the empathy advantage. Um, I suspect it will be, already is probably being very successful. I suspect it will be very, very successful. And I'm interested in what you'll do next as well. 
So you've had the the adaptation advantage, the empathy advantage. And um, how can listeners um, find you on social media, find out more about your work, uh, and keeping and find out more about the book as well? Sure. So um, first, David, I hope we get to meet up again in Paris because that was really fun. That's where we originally met at a conference in Paris. You can find out and sort of connect and engage with me on LinkedIn. That's where my learning community is. So if you listen to this and say, absolutely, I disagree with something, that's the greatest source of my learning. When you don't agree with me, uh, shoot me a note on LinkedIn. My network's open and say, hey, listen, here's what, here is, here's how I see it and why. I would appreciate that. Uh, join my community. Um, I post stuff all day long. This is what I'm reading. This is what I think about it. This is something else somebody posts me in. So it's a really powerful uh, learning network for me. My uh, website is heathermcgowan.com. It's M-C-G-O-W-A-N. That tells you all my speaking topics and uh, showreels and all that information. You can get in touch with my team there. Um, I'm not on Twitter these days. So those are my two primary vehicles. But uh, reach out. I'd love to uh, to learn from you, especially if I'm wrong, which is always a good place to start when you're learning. Great. See, so showing some vulnerability there as well, because we, none of us are ever right, are we? All the time. It's, it will be impossible. And yes, I do hope that we see each other in Paris um, I, at some point. Um, I, there's a big conference coming out in Paris in October, so you never know. Um, but, but Heather, it's, and, and certainly hope to, to see you in person as well, because um, we had a, you know, I think you, me, Peter Hinson, and a few others are quite a good, quite a good chat, didn't we? When we we were all in Paris together, so uh, so it was really good. Thank you so much for being on the show, um, and yeah, as I said, look forward to seeing you again soon. Thanks so much. Well, that concludes this captivating episode of the Digital HR Leaders Podcast. I'd like to extend my thanks again to Heather for providing us with a fresh perspective on the future of work and the power of empathy and leadership. If you did enjoy this episode, please don't forget to hit the subscribe button and leave us a five-star rating on your preferred podcast streaming channel so that we can keep producing the show. To stay updated with the latest insights from Insight222, I encourage you to subscribe to our podcast and sign up for our newsletter at myhrfuture.com. That's all for now. Thanks for tuning in. And we'll be back next week with another episode of the Digital HR Leaders podcast. Until then, take care and stay well.